Today on Truth and Politics and Culture, I will talk about things that could shape the 2024 election. Harvard President Claudine Gay resigns but refuses to accept personal responsibility for her actions. Ohio Governor Mike DeWine bows to the LGBTQ plus pressure. And the Biden administration declares war on most of your everyday home appliances. This is Dr. Tony Beam, and it's time to crank it up. Good morning, everybody, who is uh, listening on uh, Facebook or watching on Facebook Live or watching on YouTube. It's great to have you along here this morning, as always. We try to do the show every morning, 7.30, Monday through Friday. And for those that are new to the program, we talk about exactly what the title says, Truth in Politics and Culture. Glad to have you along for the ride today. The podcast will be up in about an hour. About an hour after the program finishes today, you can download the podcast from wherever you get podcasts. You can go to Spotify. You can go to Apple Podcasts. There's plenty of places where you can find the info uh, that will help your day go by a little bit better. Uh, We do our best here to talk about things from a biblical perspective when it comes to the news and also how we should apply God's Word to the culture and how we should react or think about the news based on a biblical worldview, or we try to inject truth, that is, into all things. A couple of quick things about me, since um, I was out for a few weeks uh, due to a medical issue. Uh, Glad to be back doing the program again. Um, I work at North Greenville University, where Christ makes the difference, and where we are equipping transformational leaders for the church and society. I serve there as the Director of Church and Community Engagement and Public Affairs. I also serve as the Um, a liaison or a consultant, I should say, to the South Carolina Baptist Convention concerning public policy. And that's going to get cranked up, by the way, next week. Uh, We end up this week with the Proudly Pro-Life Weekend that I'm going to talk about here in detail in just a minute. And then the the next week we will be, uh, the legislature will be coming back to Columbia. Uh, Of course, there have been committees meeting and different groups meeting. But uh, the legislature as a whole begins on January the 9th, and we will, I will be there uh, along with a lot of other people that are going to be pushing for good legislation and trying to convince lawmakers to turn away from legislature that, uh, from legislation rather, that doesn't exactly help the culture and doesn't, doesn't help us as a people to be better. All right. Uh, it's always a good day in South Carolina to protect human life, innocent human life particularly, South Carolina Citizens for Life is a nonprofit, single-issue, right-to-life organization devoted to restoring legal protection to the unborn and to protecting innocent human life by eliminating abortion, infanticide, and euthanasia from our society. And they work on those things every day right here in South Carolina. Right now, South Carolina has the heartbeat bill, which was passed this at the last second last year and uh, of the legislative session and then made it through the South Carolina uh, Supreme Court, was declared it constitutional, and it has uh, weathered a couple of attacks from Planned Parenthood and others so far that the Supreme Court has rebuffed. So we're hopeful that that law is going to stay in, in, in place. South Carolina Citizens for Life had a lot to do 
with getting that law passed. This week, South Carolina Citizens for Life will hold their 50th Jubilee celebration in Columbia, beginning with the Proudly Pro-Life Dinner on Friday, January 5th, and ending with the Proudly Pro-Life March and Rally at the State House on Saturday. That's this Saturday, January 6th. Now, the weather forecast right now says rain. Uh, I think 75% chance of rain in Columbia. Uh, we don't know when that's going to start exactly. So don't 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 miss this. And by the way, don't consider the fact that since Roe versus Wade has been overturned, that we you don't need to pay any attention to this anymore. I mean, yes, for 50 years, we emphasized the fact that we needed to show up because we needed to support the idea that protecting life in the womb at the federal level was important and Roe needed to go. And so now a lot of people think, well, Roe's, Roe's gone. Job's finished. Game over. We don't have to worry about this anymore. Um, Roe's going means that the coming of these battles on a state-by-state -state basis is exactly what we've seen and what we're going to continue to see. So it makes it more important. I know that is hard for some people to understand, it's just a fact. It's more important that we show up in South Carolina to let our lawmakers know, to send a clear message that South Carolina is pro-life. So I hope you'll join us this January 6th. South Carolina Citizens for Life welcomes Seth Dillon on Friday night at the dinner. He's the CEO of the Babylon Bee. He's going to be the guest speaker, and the dinner's going to be held at the Columbia Metropolitan Convention Center on Lincoln Street in Columbia. Check-in begins at 5.00. Doors open at 6 with dinner served at 6.30. And then on Saturday, the march and rally begins, as always, at 11 a.m. with a march from the USC Russell House on Green Street, and it ends with the rally on the steps of the State House beginning at noon. For more information, all you have to do is text SC Life to 50457. That's SC Life. Text it to 50457 or go to sclife.org. That's sclife.org. Org. And we really appreciate South Carolina Citizens for Life being a sponsor of our program, Truth in Politics and Culture. All right, Claudine Gay has decided to take the low road with her resignation, and I'll explain what that means in just a minute. Six new allegations of plagiarism led finally to her resignation. And I really think it's not that these allegations of plagiarism were more serious or um, something earth-shattering beyond the allegations that have already been made, but it's just a matter of the fact that they keep coming. It, 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 th this appears to be something that's going to continue to grow, and Harvard University board, the board had finally had enough of it. Previously, uh, before this, the Harvard Board of Trustees had vowed to stand by President Gay, and of course she had indicated that she had no intention of resigning. But these new allegations of plagiarism that were reported in the Washington Free Beacon raised the temperature past the staying point for the Harvard board uh, for Gay. The report says that in 2001, Gay copied nearly half a page of material verbatim from a political science professor at the University of Wisconsin. By the way, this information is coming not only from the Washington Free Beacon today, but also from Daily Signal and Morning Wire. Those are my sources. So you may remember, as you think back on this with President Gay, that back in December, Harvard had to admit that in addition to the initial two dozen allegations of plagiarism reported by the New York Post, that goes all the way back to October, Harvard discovered additional instances of what they referred to 
as duplicative language. Now, if you don't know what that is, it simply means that she was taking language verbatim from another person's work and incorporating it into her own without citing it. And in the academic world, that's serious business. I mean, plagiarism is stealing. It's taking somebody else's material without giving them credit. And in the academic world, that that can get you fired. It can challenge if you have tenure. It can be a threat to that. Uh, Academic integrity is one of the bigger things that most universities pay attention to for a lot of reasons. I mean, one, because it's the right thing to do. I mean, you don't want your professors running around stealing other people's work and claiming it as their own because then there's not any original thinking or original work coming to the front. Um, But also, it can affect your accreditation. It affects the integrity, the reputation of the institution. There are a lot of donors and students that are questioning right now whether or not Harvard is the place to be. And Harvard has been sort of the flagship, Harvard and Yale, uh, the flagships of the Ivy League schools. And if their reputations are being destroyed, um, I mean, certainly plagiarism on the part of their leadership and of their faculty is something that can destroy their reputation. To date, uh, Claudine Gay was facing around 50 allegations of plagiarism that represents close to half of her published works. Now, that's another thing that's been raised about uh, President Gay's leadership at Harvard. You know, if, if you're a scholar and that's the world that you dwell in, you're in an academic world and your purpose is to teach and do research and get published, then all three of those things are necessary. And uh, President Gay had published papers, uh, but as far as books written and all of this that usually accompanies people who are in an academic environment for any length of time, in fact, in most university settings, there's an expectation of publishing, uh, that you're going to be the author of a paper, that you're going to be co-authoring scholarly papers in journals, in academic journals, that you're going to be contributing to the combined knowledge of the academic community, and that you're going to be writing books. And apparently, uh, President Gay wasn't involved in a whole lot of any of that. Mostly, what she had was writing uh, papers in academic journals or in different areas, and up to 50% of what, close to 50% of what she has published has been alleged to be, um, in some form, plagiarism, taking somebody else's ideas. Um, She was facing, of course, continual criticism for her multiple refusals before a congressional committee to classify anti-Semitism as something that would absolutely violate Harvard's code of conduct. I mean, according to Elise Stefanik, Representative Stefanik, uh, she basically, she said, I gave her 16 opportunities uh, up to 16, to say that anti-Semitism was something that Harvard would not allow. But she preferred to put it in the in the language of it depending upon the context of the statements. Now, after the firestorm that hit her and Harvard, after she testified, she came back and clarified and said, well, no, you know, I didn't really mean, I, I, I didn't say enough. I, I should have said more. Uh, but by then it was too late. I mean, when, when you get opportunity after opportunity, when you're sitting there, uh, ask the same question. It's difficult to come back after the fact and say, well, what I meant to say. I mean, you, you can't really couch that within, I didn't have the opportunity or I wasn't afforded the opportunity to respond. Now, they tried that. But when you look, you go back to the tape or the replay. I love that commercial, by the way. Uh, when, let, let's go back to the replay. 
you find that she had multiple opportunities to say that anti-Semitism in any context at Harvard would not be acceptable. Both donors and potential students have been pulling back from the university since. Future enrollment is down about 20% at Harvard. And you've got people that normally would say, go to Harvard, go to Harvard. They're saying, no, probably time to pick a different institution. Gay refused to acknowledge any wrongdoing in her letter of resignation uh, regarding the allegations of plagiarism. She, she said, quote, it's been distressing to have doubt cast on my commitments to confronting hate and to upholding scholarly rigor to bedrock values of who I fundamentally am. Now, I, look, I, I get it. I, I mean, I, I can understand her reluctance to just come out and say, you know, this, this stuff is true, but plagiarism is really not that hard to define, and it's not that hard to demonstrate. I mean, when you look at somebody's work, you, and you, you lay two pieces of information side by side, you can pretty much tell if it's been lifted and just dropped in to statements that are being made that are being claimed to be a person's own statements. And so rather than admitting that she made some mistakes or that she, and, and she has said before, I think in a previous story I saw, where she admitted that maybe she didn't properly cite um, uh, something. Well, yeah, but when you've got the weight of this, when fifty up to 50% of what you have published so far has instances or allegations of plagiarism, that again, are not that difficult to demonstrate, then that's a serious problem. And to not acknowledge that openly as a reason for resignation is, in my view, just a lack of integrity. Just as the plagiarism itself is taking somebody else's property, using it as your own, lack of integrity. Refusing to admit that that was part of the reason that this resignation was going forward, lack of integrity. By the way, she's going to stay at Harvard if you were thinking that, oh, so she's going to be out looking for a job. No. Um, in fact, she's going to be doing okay if you're concerned about how much money she's going to be making because she was making close to $900,000 uh, a year as president, and she's going to keep her salary, at least for now. No one is suggesting that her salary be reduced or changed in any way, even though she's just going to be on the faculty. Um and, and, and by the way, in her resignation, I mean, you know that you knew this was coming. She implied that the calls for her res to her resign were somehow connected to racism. She said, quote, it's been frightening to be subjected to personal attacks and threats fueled by racial animus. Now, I, I have no I, I have no doubt that there are crazy people who have unjustly attacked her because of her race. But that's not what this is about. That's they're always going to be those people. They're always going to be making those kinds of decisions. The evil of racism is going to raise its head, and, and she's going to have uh, people come after her. Now, she didn't reference any specific attacks, but that doesn't mean that she wasn't getting them. I'm sure she was, a public figure. But that's not the reason that she's resigning. It's got nothing to do with racism. Plagiarism doesn't have color. I mean, it's it, it, literally, it's black and white. It's the ink on the page. And so you, 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 there's, there's no way for you to be able to, at least in a, any kind of valid way, to point to racism as being the motivation for forcing her out. She was forced out. It was, it was somewhat about 
racism because it involved anti-Semitism and her inability to condemn that as being something that it, it is akin to racism. And so um, it, it's just, you know, it's unfortunate because, look, when things like this happen, we need to learn from them. Harvard needs to learn. Harvard needs to, and, and there's no indication to me that Harvard is going to learn anything from this, that they're going to change their ways. I mean, there'll just be another person come on as president, and Harvard's going to go on its merry progressive way. Now, one of the Harvard board members was overheard talking to a group of professors and basically saying, look, we're, we're going to have to continue to deal with this. This is not going to fix all the problems at Harvard. It's just going to be the beginning. Uh, Elise Stefanik, the representative that was hard on uh, President Gay, during the questioning, and actually, I, I don't know if it's fair to say she was hard on her. I mean, she was just asking her reasonable questions when, as, as this congressional committee was trying to get to the bottom of why anti-Semitism is so rampant on college campuses. So it, it's, um, you know, at, at, as we see this kind of stuff evolve, we know that it didn't happen overnight or that this is not an attitude that just popped up after October 6th and, the, and October 7th and the war between Israel and Hamas. I mean, this is something that's been festering. It's been, and you talk to students on Harvard University campus, Yale University, MIT, uh, just about any of the major uh, college campuses, and you're going to find, if you speak to students who are Jewish, that they've been putting up with anti-Semitic slurs and smears and, and, and tropes and things of that nature for quite some time in the environments that they're in. And so this is just simply pulling back the curtains, kind of knocking the top off so that we can see that this is going on. It's kind of what COVID did for the education system in this country. It pulled back the curtain and allowed us to see what was happening in secondary, primary, secondary schools, middle schools across the country. And now we're pulling back the curtain and we're seeing what's happening with anti-Semitism as it relates to our university system. Now, there are people that support President Gay, uh, and the things that they're saying, of course, is are outrageous, in my view. Boston University professor, DEI advocate, Ibram Max Kendi, took the race card to a higher level when he tweeted that racist mobs won't stop until they topple all black people from positions of power and influence who are not reinforcing the structure of racism. So he just came out and he, he laid aside anything to do with anti-Semitism, laid aside anything to do with plagiarism, and just said this whole thing is about racism. It has nothing to do with racism. It has, there are two issues on the table. Is, uh, was President Gay guilty of plagiarism, and was she giving very softball answers that were outside the realm of reality when it comes to Harvard's attitude toward anti-Semitism. Those are the only two issues that have led to all of this, at least for her. But it, as we said, it's also revealed some of the atmosphere, some of the culture at Harvard, and it's, it's difficult stuff to, to, to watch. I mean, it really is. Uh, many people are criticizing Harvard for creating the atmosphere where President Gay flourished. The 2022, for example, search for a new president uh, that, DE, that they, they 
critics are saying that DEI was the deciding factor in choosing President Gay, not her experience, not her academic record, but that she checked all of the right boxes that Harvard was looking for in a president. Alan Dershowitz told Newsmax in an interview last week pretty much exactly what I just said. I think today under DEI, if you're black and you're an intellectual, you have a double standard applied to you and we're seeing a double standard applied in plagiarism as well. Harvard ought to change its motto from Veritas Truth to double standard. Okay, Alan Dershowitz is not one to mince words. I mean, he comes out and says what he thinks. And, of course, he believes that this was a DEI selection when President Gay was chosen to be, the, the in such a short period of time, to be what turned out to be the shortest tenure for a president in Harvard University history. Uh, Representative, again, Elise Stefanik is the one who was pressing uh, President Gay when she was president of Harvard at the congressional hearing, and and she says Congress is going to continue to investigate Harvard and other elite schools, that this isn't over just because um, President Gay decided to resign. And as I said earlier, you've got a Harvard board member told a group of professors at at a private dinner that it's going to take more than just uh, Claudine Gay's resignation to get Harvard back on track. So is there a possibility that we'll see some real change at Harvard? I wouldn't hold my breath. I mean, I really wouldn't. Progressives are entrenched, and they know how to sort of pull back into the woodwork long enough to let the heat die down, and then they come back out. I mean, I, I, you know, I, I don't see this as going as leading to on to on ongoing systemic change at Harvard, which is what needs to happen. But we can always hope. All right. uh, I want to talk a little bit about 2024, the election. We're obviously going to be talking a lot about that on this program as we get deeper into the election season. And I found this article at Politico that I thought was interesting because it talked about 24 things for us to pay attention to as we get into 2024. Uh, before we get into those 24 things, I want to ask you, if, if, you, if you listen to this program and, and part of your motivation is because you're a believer and you're concerned about what the Scripture says about the way we're supposed to live and apply truth to culture, let me encourage you to pray diligently. I've, I've begun in my quiet time in the mornings to pray for our country. I'm praying for revival. I've been praying for revival for a long time, but... I'm praying for it in the context of that we will not allow the politics of 2024 to tear the country apart. I mean, I'm very concerned at this point that if Donald Trump is elected president, the left will never accept it. They will. Some of the protests that we saw before are going to pale in comparison. I mean, I think the stage is being set for, um, and, and by the way, I'm not saying that that's a reason to not vote for Trump. Don't I want to get that out front. I'm not, that's not what I'm suggesting. I'm just saying that I think an outcome of the fact that he would be elected is going to be widespread violent protest coming from the left in maybe a way that even exceeds what we saw in the Black Lives Matter protest uh, back in the summer of George Floyd. I mean, I, I, I could see this being worse on a national scale. Now, let me hasten to say that I think that if... Um, if, if Joe Biden is elected, that you're going to see possibly the same kind of response coming from the right. I mean, 
usually we have a peaceful transfer of power. We're, we're spoiled in this country in that when we have presidential elections, we go through this process where the new president comes in, the old president goes out, we've got a, a transfer of the administration, and we the government goes along and we go along at, at, as a country with very little dissonance. I mean, we, we complain, we, we, we take to the airways, maybe there's some protest, but not to the degree and the level that we're seeing today. And with everything that's already set on the stage, on the table, uh, when you're talking about all the charges against President Trump, uh, when you're talking about the fact that President Trump's being targeted by the Department of Justice, no question, he's, he's the person that's going to likely be the nominee at this point. I mean, there's just, there's very little in the, in the atmosphere that can change that's going to stop Trump from getting the Republican nomination, in my view. And so it, it, when, when you're talking about the Department of Justice weighing in at the level they have with all of these charges that are designed, all of these attempts to remove him from the ballot, are, are, are setting the stage for what can be a very violent 2024 election year. And the same thing is true with Biden. I mean, I, on, on, on with President Biden. I mean, I think, I think a lot of people on the right would never accept. There's so many people that don't accept the fact that President Trump lost in 2020. And what, how, how much is that going to be magnified in 2024 if Biden were to win the election? And I'm concerned about both of those things because we, we, it's been a long time since we've lived in a country where perpetual violence becomes an actual threat to our way of life. I mean, I think about back in the 60s, um, I've talked about this before on the program, the, the Democrat Convention of 1968, all the violence that was there, what the Vietnam War and the assassination of President Kennedy and Bobby Kennedy and the assassination of Martin Luther King, all within a decade, all within a few years, what that did to the country. And then, of course, everything we went through with President Nixon and his impeachment and his resignation and the transition to Ford, our democracy has survived. But it's a different mindset today. And that's what makes me concerned about 2024 and why I'm encouraging you to pray that we will, we will not tear each other apart over this election, that we will respond, if, if we, regardless of which candidate wins the election, that there will be a willingness to accept the outcome in a way that keeps the country from just blowing apart. All right, 24 things. Uh, this is according to Politico, and I thought most of these were, were pretty interesting. Eight years ago, when you looked at Iowa, white evangelical voters um, were not in favor of Donald Trump at that point. Um, in fact, he, it, 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 as, a, as a majority, I mean, Ted Cruz had the majority of white evangelical voters. Trump had 21%, which was tied with Marco Rubio for second place. But now, six in 10 caucus goers, according to the, to the entrance poll, are, that are evangelicals, uh, he's dominating this block in Iowa, 56% to 22%. 22% for DeSantis, 56% for Trump when it comes to evangelicals. Now, that's an incredible swing. That's a, that's a major shift, and it's something that is propelling Trump to the White House, and, or at least 
to the nomination at this point. Uh, and that's why these endorsements in Iowa, the endorsement of the governor for DeSantis, the endorsement of um, uh, Vanderplatz, who's one of the family leader, he's head of the Family Association in Iowa. I mean, these endorsements are not moving the needle, uh, not even among evangelicals. Now, Vanderplatz will tell you that he believes that evangelicals are going to turn out for Ron DeSantis. But if you believe the polling, and by the way, when you see a poll that's far outside the margin of error, then that's a poll to pay attention to. I mean, polls that operate within the margin of error, um, sometimes those polls get too much attention because they could go, the margin of error matters. I mean, it could go either way. But this is 56 to 22%. And so any chance for DeSantis or uh, Nikki Haley to mount any kind of a real threat to Trump winning Iowa, I just don't see it. Now, I could be wrong. All right, number two, Nikki Haley's vote share among women in New Hampshire. I really found this interesting because if, if, if Nikki Haley's going to pull off some type of upset in New Hampshire, um, she's going to have to improve the gender gap that she has. I, the strongest woman presidential candidate in Republican Party history, I think that could be truly said of Nikki Haley at this point, is running better with men than women, particularly in New Hampshire. Uh, Haley's at 30% overall. Um, I think Trump in New Hampshire was at 34, 36%, something like that. So Haley has gotten within striking distance, at least, in New Hampshire. But she's only six point, she's only six points behind Trump among men, but 40, which is 40 to 34%, but a whopping 25 points behind Trump among women, 48% to 23%. Now, that's interesting to me, because if if women abandon Nikki Haley, and for whatever reason, at least according to these polling numbers out of New Hampshire, they're not buying her message, and they're sticking with Donald Trump, uh, she has no shot in New Hampshire of making any kind of a comeback. Uh, Write-in vote share for Joe Biden in New Hampshire. Okay, the president's name, Joe Biden, is not going to be on the ballot in the first-in-the-nation primary next month because of the president's efforts to put South Carolina first. You know, they want, they want South Carolina first because Joe Biden is popular among Democrats in South Carolina, and he's got a much better chance of coming out strong out of that primary than he would coming out of New Hampshire. So it is, his, at least for now, the, his president, the name is not even, the president's name is not even on the ballot in New Hampshire. But you've got Representative Dean Phillips, who's a Democrat from Minnesota, um, they're having a write-in campaign. Democrats are sponsoring a write-in campaign in New Hampshire for Phillips, and President Biden is pushing back. This could be an embarrassment. I mean, I wouldn't minimize this. I mean, if, if, if Biden, let's just say Phillips gets 30%, 35% plus of the vote in New Hampshire in a write-in campaign, that'd be a major embarrassment for President Biden going into the South Carolina primary, which is going to be important for him to win by a large number. Uh, Biden's approval rating is number four. Uh, it's presidents with approval ratings significantly below 50% have lost re-election. I mean, if you look at it historically, that's been the case. And as of Friday, Biden's average approval rating was at 40.5%. Now, in some polls, he's down as low as 34%. But in the clear, real clear politics average, his approval rating is at 40%. So that's going to be a drag on President Biden. 
Uh, number of Donald Trump convictions before Election Day. Again, this is according to Politico. Between state charges in New York and Georgia, plus federal cases in D.C. and South Florida, the former president's currently facing 91 felony counts. And though the charges don't seem to be deterring Republican primary voters, this is that's a that's an incredible statement. Um, not only is it not deterring Republican primary voters, it's encouraging them to go to the polls and vote for Trump. Uh, now, if he gets convicted of something, it may have an impact. I still don't think it's going to be enough of an impact for him to lose the nomination, even if he's found guilty somewhere. And by the way, uh, Trump won a big court victory um, over the death of January 6th officer Brian Sicknick. Uh, you, you may not even know about this, but there's been a lawsuit effect that uh, was filed against Trump and two others in relation to Sicknick's death. There were, I think, five counts, and a U.S. district judge, Amit Mata, dismissed three of the five civil counts in a lawsuit filed last January by Sandra Garza, who was Sicknick's girlfriend. Uh, Garza's lawsuit against Trump and January 6th rioters um, that, uh, that included Julian Cater and George Tanos sought damages from all three men for claims of wrongful death, conspiracy to violate civil rights, and negligence, per se, based on D.C.'s anti-riot law. In his ruling Tuesday, Meta dismissed the Wrongful Death Act count and both negligence, per se, allegations. So there's two allegations left in that lawsuit that, that may go to trial. Now, this, this is civil trial. This doesn't have anything to do with Trump facing prison time, but it's another possible trial that would be taking place that would take the attention away from Trump's presidential campaign. All right. Um, so th we don't know what's going to happen with all these, with all the, the legal charges. I mean, what does it mean when you have a person who may be elected president of the United States who has all these legal charges against him? Yeah, he can pardon himself on the federal charges, but he can't pardon himself without some help on the state charges from people, from uh, the governors or the legislatures, for example, in the states, in New York and in Georgia. I think you'd have a lot better, easier time, of course, in Georgia of getting those charges pardoned than he would in the state of New York. Uh, the Con Conference Board Consumer Confidence Index may have an impact on 2024. Uh, the year ended... 2023 actually ended with an uptick in consumer confidence, and that's a sign of an improving economic outlook moving into the election year. Now, we, we don't know what's going to happen economically in 2024. We're seeing the stock market take a step back. At least it did yesterday. Um, I don't know what it's doing today yet. What time? Oh, it's the stock market. I don't think it's open yet. Uh, but unlike other data that measures economic conditions, it mo is mostly based on how consumers feel about the country's financial situation, and it went up slightly at the end of the year. Will that trend continue? I mean, if it does, it's going to put a dent in the Republicans' argument that the economy's terrible. Now, I don't think it's going to continue. I think this was seasonal. I, 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 you know, it was taken at the end of the year. I don't find this to be a general direction because people are still feeling the effects of inflation. Yes. Prices are not rising as fast as they were, but they're stuck at a higher level. And people know that every time they go to the grocery store or drive up to the gas pump. And so no matter what Biden says about Bidenomics, I, don't, I, I still think the, 
the, the economy is going to be one of the chief drags on any chance that Joe Biden has of being reelected. Um, number seven, the number of states where Robert Kennedy Jr. is on the ballot. A super PAC supporting his candidacy is starting the qualification process with a targeted list of large and competitive states. Kennedy's campaign says its goal is to get him on the ballot everywhere. Um, Kennedy, Cornell West, or a potential no-labels ticket could draw votes that could make a decisive difference in the states. I mean, states that Biden needs to win or that Trump needs to win in order to win. And, and, and any of these third-party candidates, I really think they're going to take more votes away from Biden than they will a, away from Trump. Trump's voters are loyal, and I don't think that the third party is going to have much of an effect on him. Uh, the number of general election debates for the president. We may not get any debates this year. I mean, think about it. We're accustomed to seeing three, uh, plus a debate between the running mates. And the National Committee, the Bipartisan Commission on Presidential Debates, has scheduled three customary meetings, three customary debates. But there's no, there's no guarantee that Trump and Biden will show up for these. I mean, I don't know that there'll be any debates. I, if I had to make a prediction today, I'd say in 2024, we're not going to see any presidential debates. But that's just not going to happen. Uh, number nine, the number of states visited by Biden in the final two months of the campaign. Uh, if Can President Biden physically and mentally hold up to the rigor of a campaign that he's going to actually have to conduct this time? He got by with it last time because of COVID. He was able to sit out the election and just let surrogates go out and make them. He can't do that this time. He's going to have to get in to the nitty-gritty business of campaigning and in the final two months, of, two months of any campaign, those are critical months where the candidate has to be on the stump in a lot of locations getting people's attention. The question is, can Biden handle that? A lot of people are saying no. What about the turnout rate? General election, will 2024 be more like 2020 or more like 2016? And the turnout rate could be the answer. In 2016, when the country wasn't enamored with its candidates, 61% of adult citizens voted. That's according to the Census Bureau. But in 2020, with relatively positive views of Biden and Trump, 67% voted. So what about turnout? I mean, it, it's, that's going to depend. It, it's going to depend greatly on the popular vote. I mean, turnout, of course, affects the popular vote, but it, it's going to affect the Electoral College. It was low turnout for Hillary Clinton that was part of the reason that Donald Trump won in 2016. Could we see the same thing with Biden here? Because there's just a lot of questions about Biden, about even among Democrats, about his health, about his mental acuity. Um, so we'll see. The enthusiasm gap. Signs and were there in 2016 when Trump voters were more enthusiastic than those backing Hillary Clinton. Biden's 2020 victory, powered more by voters casting ballots to oppose Trump than to elect Biden. I've, I've heard Ben Shapiro say this a thousand times, and I believe it's true. If this election becomes about Trump and Trump makes this election about the 2020 election, I think Trump loses. If Republicans, and particularly Trump, make this, this election about Biden and, and what he's done as president of the United States, then I think Trump wins. And because I think the enthusiasm gap is going to kick in big time 
as long as it's, I get it. There's a lot of people that don't like Trump. They'll go out and vote against him, but there's not enough of them to overcome the Republican enthusiasm uh, right now for a Donald Trump presidency as long as the conversation is not consistently about Trump and his legal trouble. It needs to be about Biden and his trouble and being an effective administrator as president of the United States. Uh, all right, number 12, the Biden-Trump split among voters who dislike both Biden and Trump. Views of both Biden and Trump, especially Biden, are more neg negative than they were last time, making this a key voting block. That is, people who are just not excited about either one. A recent Fox News poll showed Biden actually leading among the voters who don't like him and Trump by eight points. So of all the vote, if you, you take all these voters who have decided that they don't like either candidate, you have 8% more of them are willing to go vote for Biden than they are for Trump, even though they don't like either candidate. Now, that could be a factor in close states. That's something to watch. Uh, number 13, the Biden-Trump split among voters who somewhat disapprove of Biden's job performance. Part of the secret to Democrats' better-than-expected midterm results was the fact that voters who said they somewhat disapprove of the job Joe Biden was doing as president didn't abandon the party. Now, that's something to watch in 2024 because— I think a lot of the polling that said that Republicans were going to have a historic victory in 2020 was based on the fact that Biden's personal poll numbers were so low. But even though they were low, people went out and stuck with the Democrat Party. They they didn't reject they when they had the opportunity. Now, they're going to have the opportunity this time to specifically reject Biden. When the opportunity came, even though they didn't like Biden to reject the Democrat Party, they stuck with the party. That could have an impact in 2024. Um, the Biden-Trump split among women voters without college degrees. Now, this is, I know this is getting pretty specific, but honestly, a, a subgroup that loops together two countervailing electoral trends, the widening gender and education gaps, and, and you put those two things together, and it could make a difference. Women without college degrees make up roughly a third of the 2020 electorate, according to the AP vote cast, which showed Biden beating Trump by two points, roughly equal to his four-point overall victory among women without college degrees. And more of them evidently vote in these general elections than those who are better educated. Uh, and I'm not speaking of people's intelligence here. I'm just talking about education level with something that can be measured. Number 15, Biden's vote share among voters younger than 30. Now, this is fascinating to me. Biden won 61% of voters between the ages of 18 to 29 in 2020. Some polls now show Trump running neck and neck with Biden or even leading among the youngest slice of the electorate. If that holds, Trump will be president. Mark it down. He will win the 2024 election if he is even with Biden on voters younger than 30 or if he wins that category. I don't think Biden can win without him, without, without a, a, a substantial majority of them going his way. Number 16, Biden campaign ad spending in Florida. The Sunshine State is moving rapidly to the right thanks to the leadership of Ron DeSantis and the Republican Party in Florida. 
Democrats maintain they aren't writing off its 30 electoral votes yet, but notably the Biden campaign ad blitz in the second half of 2023 didn't include Florida. So Florida's, look, Florida's not going to be on the table. I, I don't see why the Democrats would spend a bunch of money down there. They're not going to make up the gap um, right now. Florida is a deep red state. Uh, Republican ad spending on abortion messaging. This, this, this could have an, an impact. Of the $428 million spent on abortion ads in the 2022 midterms, according to uh, Ad Impact, the vast majority was spent by Democrats. Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin's PAC was more proactive this year in trying to message about abortion, but the GOP still lost the race to control the state legislature. And the, so there's abortion's going to be an issue in 2024. And Republicans are going to need to find a message that resonates with the voters. Now, I'm not suggesting that they should find a message that resonates, that walks away from the defense of life. And I don't think they have to. In fact, again, when you look at what happened in Jordan, uh, in Georgia, when you look at what happened in South Carolina, when you look at what happened in Florida, people who run on a pro-life platform and stick to it get elected as Republicans. And so the messaging needs to be consistent. Instead of trying to, to run away or, or trying to back away from the pro-life issue, Republicans need to embrace it. They need to boldly embrace it. They need to make the argument. They need to run the ads, and I think they'll win. But if they try to somehow, you know, just, well, we don't want to talk about abortion, or, yeah, you know, we, 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 they back up some way, and allow abortion to be lost as an issue that Republicans can run on because they're not willing to take a strong stand. That's one of the things that I've really appreciated about Ron DeSantis in this race. I mean, he's, he's never backed away from the fact that he's pro-life. And he says he's pro-life because it's a personal conviction. It's the right thing to do and be. That is how Republicans need to run. Number 18, the number of states with abortion ballot measure, measures from Kansas to Ohio, Abortion rights are undefeated at the ballot box in the post-Dobbs era. Activists in a number of red or battleground states, including Arizona, Florida, and Nevada, are trying to put initiatives on the ballots. Now, if, they, if they're successful and there's a bunch of initiatives on the ballots, that could do two things. One, it could motivate Planned Parenthood to spend extra dollars in those swing states to try to get progressives out to vote against ballot measures. Hopefully, it's going to motivate uh, evangelicals to get to the polls in those states to defend the protection of life in the womb. But that, that remains to be seen. But we, we have, I get so frustrated when I talk about this because we have got as a party, as Republicans, as evangelicals, as, as, as conservatives, we have got to hold the line when it comes to the protection of life because so many other things are tied to the idea that we are created in the image of God and that we, de we deserve the protection under the law that is afforded to anybody that is born or unborn. I mean, it, it, we, we need to hold to that position. We don't need to equivocate. Uh, number 19, the national murder rate. The murder rate is down about 13% from last year. That's the biggest annual drop ever, by the way. But you know what's making that hard for that message to get through? 
all the crime in New York and San Francisco and California and Illinois and Michigan and a lot of these blue states, it's not just the murder rate. It's assaults. It's smash and grab. It's people being um, accosted on the streets. I mean, there's a sense of lawlessness in this country that's going to hurt Joe Biden's re-election bid and should help Trump. Number 20, the number of competitive Republican Senate primaries. Republicans only need to flip one Democratic-held Senate seat to win control of the chamber if they also win the White House. And with West Virginia almost a sure thing, then the GOP is already on the brink of the majority. Now, that's when it comes to the Senate. Joe Manchin is retiring. Uh, West Virginia will elect a Republican, most likely. But in most of their targeted seats, including Montana, Ohio, Michigan, and Wisconsin, the party faces the prospect of a knockdown, dragout primary. Now, that's, that's the one thing that could take away from the Republicans in Ohio, Montana, Michigan, and Wisconsin of being sure that they can hold those seats. If, if you've got a knockdown primary that, and, 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 it, and it drags out, over time, and, and you've got Republicans spending a lot of money attacking each other, then that could affect, you've got a, a wounded candidate coming out of the primary going into the general election. That would be a bad thing. But as it stands, Republicans have a good chance at this point of retaking the Senate. Number 21 candidates on the Arizona general election ballot for Senate. Will Senator Kristen Sinema, Kirsten Sinema, excuse me, attempt an uphill independent bid for a second term, or will the fate of her seat come down to a more conventional Democrat, Representative Ruben Gallego, versus Republican former gubernatorial candidate Carrie Lake? That's, Arizona is going to be interesting to watch for two reasons. One, this ballot, for this race for the Senate and what Kirsten Sinema does, and um, what, how election integrity comes across in Arizona because of the problems that they've had in the past. Number 22, Democrats who qualify for the general election for Senate in California. For much of 2023, it looked like Representatives Adam Schiff and Katie Porter were on a collision course for a Democrat versus Democrat general election next November, but Republican Steve Garvey's rise in the polls is jeopardizing that matchup, mostly to Porter's detriment, according to polls that show Schiff inching out in front of the pack. So. Adam Schiff is probably going to get a lead in this race, but the way elections work in California, Steve Garvey has got a real shot to unseat him. He's very popular, and it's just going to depend on how many conservatives, how many Republicans in California you can find to get them to the polls in these districts. Number 23, again, this information that I'm sharing with you today is coming from Politico. I just found it interesting that all these things are playing into the 2024 election, and, and it gives us something to think about as we look at uh, what's in front of us. House districts flipped by Democrats in New York. This is very interesting. Now that the state's highest court has given New York Democrats a green light to redraw draw their congressional map, how aggressive the party gets could very well determine which party controls the House after the election. Now, it, it, we don't pay attention too many times to states when laws are changed about districting because New York is redrawing, according to um, a judgment that they got in court, they're redrawing the maps that gave us representatives from New York that are Republican. 
that created conservative districts. They're going to the, the Democrats are going to try to obliterate those districts. It's possible that Democrats could flip as many as six seats, and the first one, of course, could come February 13th in the special election to replace uh, George Santos, who was expelled. By the way, if you're paying attention, uh, we've had another Republican, Representative Johnson uh, from Ohio, is stepping down early to become the president of a college. And so now we're down to a two, basically a two-seat majority. I mean, you got three. You're gonna we're gonna we're gonna have Santos. Uh, we've got McCarthy, and we're gonna have Johnson. You're gonna have three vacancies, and that's bringing the Republican majority down to a dangerous level. And that's gonna affect whether or not we're gonna be able to get legislation across the finish line about keeping the government open, funding the government. I mean, all of that is gonna it, it whether whether or not Mike Johnson, Representative Johnson, can survive as speaker, if there's an, uh, an opportunity or a move to unseat him, any kind of negotiation over Ukraine aid that includes new legislation to protect the border that's out of control, all of that is going to be affected by the fact that we've got Republicans walking out the door early at a time when we've got such a slim majority. And finally, Number 24 to look at in 2024 is the number of House retirements. So far, 35 House members have said they won't seek re-election, a list that doesn't include the seven who've died, been expelled, resigned, or said they will soon resign. Of those 35 retirees and members seeking other offices, 23 are Democrats, potentially complicating the party's back path back to the majority. That's good news for Republicans at this point. The vast majority of those leaving Congress so far are Democrats. The thing is, uh, the retirement usually, all these retirements and announcements usually don't hit their peak till sometime around this time of year. So it's very possible that uh, we could see more Republicans hit the door. And if they hit the door, <laughs> I mean, if, if we lose any more Republicans, the majority in the House is going to be in jeopardy. And we're going to have chaos. And not that we don't have it now, but I mean, it's, the chaos is going to be multiplied if Republicans lose the majority that they have. All right, that's going to be about all the time we have for today. A couple of stories that I mentioned we'll get to tomorrow um, as um, I'm trying to go a little bit longer each day with the program here as a part of my recovery. But I want to thank you for listening to the show today. hope you've enjoyed it. If you have, do me a favor. Leave me a good review when you download the podcast. Tell your friends about the program. Push this on Facebook and YouTube so that other people find out about it. Because if you're enjoying it, uh, chances are that other people will enjoy it as well. And you can help me promote the program. Oh, by the way, let me... Whoa, 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 whoa. Hold up here. Before we, before we go, I want to just mention again the Proudly Pro-Life Weekend coming up this weekend in Columbia, South Carolina Citizens for Life. Uh, just just quickly, if you want to get more information, text SC Life to 50457. Basically, the dinner Friday night with the guest speaker um, is going to be something you don't want to miss. If you can get there, Seth Dillon, who's the CEO of the Babylon Bee, is going to be there. It's at the Columbia Metropolitan Convention Center on Lincoln Street. Check in at 5, doors open at 6, dinner served at 6.30, and then at 11 o'clock on Saturday will be the rally, um, the pro-life rally. You don't have need any tickets or anything for that. You just need to show up, uh, go to the Russell House at 11 o'clock to march, and then the rally begins on the Capitol steps at 12 o'clock. 
Go to sclife.org to get more information on all of this today. All right, God bless you. Have a great day. I'll see you in the morning on YouTube Live and on Facebook Live at 730. Until then, may the Lord be with you.